Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways that the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Today, I will be speaking with Ellen Chartier, Director of Urban Planning and Design at C40 Cities, a leading global organization that is dedicated to sustainable urban development. C40 Cities works tirelessly to forge a path towards low-carbon cities, which is our episode's central theme. We will delve into the organization's mission and explore some of the best practices from around the world that are aimed at creating greener, more sustainable, and environmentally conscious cities. But before beginning the conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about my guest. As stated earlier, Ellen Chartier is the Director of Urban Planning and Design at C40 Cities. The team that she leads develops programs and activities that support cities to accelerate sustainable and resilient urban planning policies and design practices. Her team focuses on several initiatives, including the C40 Land Use Planning Network, the Reinventing Cities Competition, and the Green and Thriving Neighborhoods Program. Ellen previously served as an advisor to the formidable mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo. She also worked for the Paris Urbanism Agency and the global consulting firm Arab. She holds a master's degree in science and engineering from the École Centrale with a specialization in building and civil engineering. And over the past 15 years, Ellen has lived and worked in Paris, London, and New York. Welcome to On Cities, Ellen. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Carrie, for the great introduction and for inviting me in this uh, in this uh, show. Thank you. Thank you. So, Ellen, I often begin these conversations by asking my guests about their early childhood experiences, um, because I think in many ways these memories may shape our first thinkings about the world. So, Ellen. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how that experience may have influenced your thinking about cities? Mm, that's a good question. I grew up in the suburb of Paris, so approximately 20 kilometers from the center of, uh, of, the, of the city. And actually, this is an interesting place. Uh, it's, uh, it's what we call in French les villes nouvelles, like the new cities that has been built by the French government in the 60s, 70s to grow the Greater Paris uh, Metropolitan. And it's actually very, it represents, I think, really the bad urbanism model that we try to reverse today. Doesn't mean I was uh, I was not happy, but it's really the low density dormitory cities where single family model and also absolutely no job opportunity, no amenities, and actually, when they were building this type of uh, Les Villes Nouvelles, like the new cities, they were building in the other part of the city on the west side of the suburb, the, the CBD, the business district. So, so it's basically I saw my, my parents commuting two hours a day to basically go from the east part of Paris to the west part of Paris. So this is really a, 
it has been a very happy childhood. But at the same time, now that I'm working in this field, I realize that it's not really the type of urbanism that we want to encourage uh, in, in the different cities. And I'm sure we will discuss that a bit more after. It's so interesting to hear you say that because oftentimes, of course, the European city is always seen as a kind of model for great urbanism. But in fact, um, that model is oftentimes the historic city that um, has the great urbanism that we discuss. And in fact, in the post-war, as you mentioned, you know, the European suburbs can oftentimes be even far, I don't want to say far worse, but but perhaps they seem worse because uh, than even the American suburb because they're immediately adjacent to these extraordinary urban environments, which are oftentimes the historic city centers. So I think it's... Um, it's your your particular perspective is a unique one. And I think now, given the work that you're doing to advance, you know, the future of our cities, I think it provides uh, for a very interesting context. So, um, I mean, I think you've had many interesting um, professional experiences, uh, but I was curious because you served as an advisor to the formidable uh, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris. And I was wondering if you could provide us with a window into what that experience was like for you. Yeah. It was a it was an amazing experience. First, uh, when you work for Meyer, the political, it's my only very political uh, experience. You really work for the person, which is something you work uh, the day, the weekend, the night. <laughs> that's that's really something. But she's such a fantastic and courageous woman <laughs> that it was really an honor to work with uh, with with her. She was the first female mayor of Paris and probably one of the first female mayor of the of the group, like the biggest cities in, in France. And I have to say, it's not easy when you are a strong woman in politics. <laughs> so she has been so courageous pushing like the typically the sustainability agenda, the climate action, which is not always easy. And she faced a lot of uh, difficulties and very often the fact that she was, you know, she knew what she wanted. She, she go to what she wanted. Sometimes people were saying she's arrogant and, you know, the type of things that maybe you will not... Um, heard uh, here for 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 male i would say they are courageous they are brave she was arrogant and everything so it was not always easy but i think she has been very uh, she has done a lot of uh, fantastic things and it's it's easy it's interesting because she has been in place already more than approximately 10 years and she have a few more and um and now there is things that she has pushed at the beginning of her first mandate, and it was controversial and difficult that everyone now recognizes. It was such an important uh, transformation for the city of Paris and everything. So I think being courageous in politics when you are Myers, it's uh, it's very very important. And I was working to relate also to the previous question you had. Uh, I was especially working on the topic of the Greater Paris development, which is a very interesting uh, topic because, as you mentioned, we have this image of the European cities, but it's very different. Paris is the size of Manhattan. <laughs> the Greater Paris is the size of New York. So it's basically you have three times more people outside just in the in the suburb of Paris that are just next to, to, to the city. And... Uh, New York has done its uh, metropolitan revolution in the beginning of the 20th century. Paris has still not done it. We are still a very, it's a very different administration than the rest of the suburb. So, and in the past, the city of Paris was a, was a was a city that was directly governed by uh, the French government. There was no mayors, no local government. So basically, they have 
bring a lot of effort and finance uh, resource attractiveness within the city and the suburb was really the place where you know they put all of the equipment services like logistic center or like cemetery like waste treatment and the dormitory for the middle class so they have a lot of bitterness also in this relationship like historical bitterness between the 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 city and it's almost 180 cities just around paris the myers and the cities and the city center that was really seen as where all of the concentration of uh, of positive things and so basically an hidalgo has really worked to to first start the discussion about, you know, there is no future of Paris within Paris. There is no more big opportunity in Paris. We need to think what is our vision for this metropolitan area, how we can create a joint governance and also financial uh, resource to, to share more the resource together. So this has been a very complicated uh, discussion, but very positive. And since 10 years, so many progress has been done also to create a more polycentric development, to pre- to create very positive projects, not only within the city center, but also in the, in the city uh, uh, next to Paris. So, and I really, I think it was a very interesting agenda and I was very happy to serve her in this uh, discussion. Yeah, from an American perspective, I mean, she really was a leading figure in um, promoting the idea of the 15-minute city, which we'll talk about um, a little bit later in the show. But um, but I think, again, advocating for what you're describing, which is the polycentric city, right? The city yeah. that within you know 15 minutes can offer you all of the things that you might need on a day-to-day basis, which certainly the historic city center with its fabulous arrondissements has always done. So I think... Um, I think that 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 experience certainly um I can I think prepared you for um the task that you have today which is that you serve as the director of urban planning and design at C40 Cities. And so for those of us that are or our listeners that are not familiar with your organization, can you tell us a little bit about it and what is its central mission? So so C40 Cities is um is an NGO first that has been created um 15, 20 years ago. Actually, the, the objective was Myers asking themselves how they can contribute to the climate uh, uh, crisis, how they can accelerate their action. And uh, they were looking at nation and the progress were very small. <laughs> and then they were asking, okay, maybe actually we have more um, operational um capacities and resources to transform our cities. Most of the emissions come from our cities. And uh, and we have also, in some ways, some cities were more progressive than the national state. So it was, they were saying, actually, we need also to create a form of um, UN <laughs> of cities uh, focusing on climate change. And I think that's exactly that. So it's a, it's Meyer, direct Meyer, discussing together on uh, creating their objective sharing their experience and now we have grow it's really we are working with all of the different level of the administration and the political and technical side to to help this acceleration that is very very needed both in terms of reducing the emission but also adapting our cities to to the climate crisis that is already there so perhaps we can turn to that um, squarely, the question of global gas emissions, because when we discuss emissions, we often um, perhaps turn to three leading contributors, uh, which are buildings, 
um, say our our transportation systems and and our waste. Um, so maybe we could try to tackle these at least briefly one at a time. Uh, first, I guess being an architect, I'm going to start with the buildings. Um, Ellen, what element what elements would you say are, are most critical when thinking about the design of more sustainable and resilient buildings for our future cities? And I think first it's important to acknowledge that buildings today are the biggest contributors <laughs> from far, actually. Uh, in, in If you look at the global level, it's uh, 40% of the world emission. If you look only in the urban area, so more the city, it's almost 50%. And from some city like New York, it can go uh, even more. So, so buildings are really where we should focus our uh, effort. And the built environment sector is responsible in a way on on many things and as you know in that sense also a big role to play to in this to tackle the climate uh, crisis and i think um it's it's important to understand where these emissions come from so there is two main categories of emission that come from the building that what we call first the operational emission which is basically the the emissions that come from um the the heat systems the electricity that are being used within the building uh, and these emissions are, are, are approximately two-thirds of the building emission, so the most important contributor, but also the one where we have more experience today. We have been focusing a lot the effort on this operational emission from, from building. The good thing is that today we know exactly and the technology is ready to tackle this operational emission. So actually, for example, when you build a new uh, building today, the technology is there to build a net zero emission through design that are passive, through incorporating production of renewable energy. To So there is a lot of things and there is plenty now of great example of projects that are, that are reaching the net zero operational emission. Um, where we are less good, I would say, it's to, 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 to act on the existing building stock. And that's where we should focus our efforts. So how we basically retrofit the existing building stock is, is a very important. And today, the rate of retrofit of the existing building are very slow compared to, to what we do, to what we should uh, aim. So the Paris Agreement, which is um, the main objective of the scientists of, of who are working on the, on the climate crisis, they say that we should try to reach uh, net zero by 2050. So that means retrofitting all of the building stock by 2050 and building only net zero at the operational level. And there is plenty of good example. I was uh, New York, for example. Uh, I was mentioning New York because it has very specific urban fabric with uh, like this tall building and everything. For, so in New York, uh, building emission is approximately uh, 70% of the emission of the city. So that's really uh, absolutely central. And the city of New York in the in 2019 have really passed a very important regulation to basically make mandatory for every building owner to retrofit their existing uh, their building, and they have put in place like uh, incentive, in financial support, technical support to help these uh, these uh, these uh, transformation of the existing building. So that's uh, that's a very very good example to what we have done. The second category of emission, it's what we call the embodied emission, which is basically the emission that come from the construction work. So the construction itself of the emission. When you build, you use materials that come from 
somewhere that has been extracted. You take some energy to put together this, uh, this building, and this is creating a lot of emission, approximately one third of the building uh, emission. And these emissions are, are very important because, first, because we, in the past, like uh, 10 years ago, nobody was thinking about this emission. It was like the hidden <laughs> emission. And now we know that it's first a very important part, but also when you look at the and the whole life cycle uh, assessment of a building, basically the peak of emission that is created at the very beginning of a, of the of a project is so important. While the the, the operational emission are much more, you know, a, a bit every year. So it's one third, but it's one third that come most of it at the very beginning of a, of a project. So that in in the in the discussion where we say, you know, we have started the typing point, the typing point on climate crisis, we need to act now, really now, there is more and more voice saying that's really where we should focus our effort, slow down construction, reduce this embodied emission from, from the construction. And we know today that the the, we, we built approximately the equivalent of uh, one new city like New York every month in the world, which is a lot. It's a lot of new building, new square meter that we are building. So if we don't change the way we built, if we don't also think how we can better reuse <laughs> the existing building rather than, than constrain, uh, building new, we are going in, in a very bad uh, place. So there is plenty of now example of of, of uh, policies and projects that are trying to tackle this uh, embodied emission. We don't know how to get to zero. When you build new, you will necessarily uh, create emission. You can't build net zero embodied emission, but you can reduce to 50-60%. So first, there is, there is a lot of uh, cities like uh, Vancouver, for example, who have uh, developed policies to... Uh, to it's called anti-home tax to try to push um, to fight uh, inoccupancy of building in a city like Paris, where I sit, we estimate like 8.5% of the housing are totally empty. This is crazy, and at the same time, we have this this uh, this housing crisis. So also, mayors and national government try also to start to take some policies to fight this inoccupancy and to bring back this uh, this uh, this housing uh, as part of the of the market. Uh, uh, another example, Los Angeles has been putting um, a, a load to, to help uh, the to support the development of adaptive reuse, especially in the city center, like old building, to try to avoid this circle of demolition reconstruction. So they basically provide some support uh, for the permit and, and financial support to help this type of conversion of building, which is interesting from a climate perspective, but also from a, from an historical perspective. So there is more and more. And there is also something I think very important in this field is how we can extend the life. I think it's very interesting. There is a lot of example. If I look, for example, in Paris, the typical Haussmann building, so the building that you know from Paris, it's a building that has, of course, 200, 300 years. What makes this building very amazing from a climate perspective is that it's a building that it's so easy to transform. It can be a housing for 20 years, and then it can become an offices, and then it can become housing. The, the, the design of this building is so flexible and adaptive is that it, it is probably the reason why it is still uh, in place. We know that most of the buildings that are demolished have no structural problem. <laughs> they are demolished because their aesthetic is uh, is not 
you know, working anymore or because their specialization is so important. They are so organized as a, as a offices that is absolutely v- complicated or very difficult yeah. to transform it. So we need also to build with this vision of how we can extend the life and, and stop these, these, uh, these visions. And of course, all of the work around the, uh, uh, around the new material of construction, bio-based material, wood construction that we are seeing, especially in Canada, for example, or in the Nordic country in Europe, we are seeing uh, a lot of new buildings that now that replace, which are the main contributor, which is concrete and steel by uh, wood, by bio-based material in Africa. The, the Pritzker Prize, actually, the Nobel of Architecture, Francis Quéret, has really develop some project with um, local mud brick. <laughs> to, so that's also uh, a lot of, uh, of work is doing to, to, to develop new material of construction that are low carbon. And that's also a very important uh, element to reduce the emission from the, from the building. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, it's many, you, you said a great deal in that answer. And as a way of like, uh, what I heard, of course, is, you know, let's try not to demolish, but rather to transform. Um, and that's not only a question of design, but also oftentimes requires policies because, you know, as a practicing architect, sometimes the, or oftentimes the preservation of existing buildings can be more challenging and can sometimes be more costly. So if you have policies in place to advocate for it, then more people might be willing to do that. Uh, but also many cities' economic structures are linked to this kind of renewal, you know, and reconstruction. And so, um, rethinking what that means, I think, is also um, an interesting question. And then, of course, you mentioned Quere, but I, I can also think about uh, Lacaton and Vassal, the French architects that won the Pritzker, and of course, their work in the reuse of buildings. Um, so um, I think you point to a number of very interesting examples, which give us um, something to, to think about. And it's interesting because you mentioned that buildings are, in fact, and in urban centers can and certainly in the case of New York, you argue that it could rise to 60 or 70%, you know, the buildings um, and the the link to the global gas emissions, but also transportation, right? I mean, I've oftentimes seen these two oscillating, right? People talk about how will we make more sustainable buildings, but also what about our transportation networks? So Ellen, what, what lessons could you share with us um, in your work through C40 cities um, or ways that we could plan more sustainable transportation networks for our cities? So that's that's the second main contributors of, uh, of emission in cities. So it's approximately 35% of the emission of the cities. So also very, very uh, important. And there is not one unique response to that, but, but there is, a, I would say, a package of solutions and that cities are pushing. And most of the time, they push many different solutions. Of course, probably the, the most uh, well-known one is to invest in public transport. It's complicated to say to people, give up on your car if they don't have an alternative. So you have cities like Jakarta, for example, in Indonesia, who has, uh, who has in, in five years, who have invested so many um, money in, in the uh, transport system, mostly bus, uh, that they have given access to 92% of their population to a, a public transport. And it has uh, it has really doubled the, the public transport coverage in, in five years. So it's it, there is really, we have at C40 a program called uh, Zebra, Zero Emission Bus uh, Deployment Accelerator, which is focusing on Latin America, where we basically help 
working also with a financing system to to, to help uh, Latin American city like Medellin, Bogota, Quito to develop a rapid bus and to 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 procure um, electrical bus for the cities. So this is uh, I would say this is very important to provide alternative to the cities with. Uh, with public transport and it doesn't have necessarily to be uh, to be subway that are very costly and everything but bus electrical bus rapid bus that's sometimes the most cost efficient and rapid way to deploy public transport around uh, across the, the cities the second thing we have seen exploding <laughs> uh, uh, it's really bike so that's and actually that's yeah it's not a new technology huh? but uh, this is really something that were 10 years ago as a niche for a few cities uh, in Europe, like Copenhagen or Amsterdam in the Netherlands, also in, in Asia, actually. But that was not a model at all for many other cities. And since 10, five years, a big accelerator with the COVID, let's be, uh, let's be honest, we have really seen across Europe for sure, but also across America, across Latin America and, and other regions, the deployment massive of bike lanes, uh, 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 parking for bike and 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 a lot of uh, different solutions to accelerate the, the 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 use of bike across the cities and also scooters this type of uh, alternative and it's uh, at the, a lot of people were saying oh that's solution only for like dance city center it's very complicated that that's true actually when you have very long uh, to, ten miles to do it might be more complicated but actually now we are even seeing. You know, highway for bike. <laughs> so where you have really rapid uh, system without, you know, uh, without um, uh, stop or things like that, or you can very quick. And of course, the deployment of electrical vehicle. I also help the deployment for a longer uh, travel in bike. So that's really a, a revolution in Paris. It's in five years. It has been really a revolution in in the way people were moving in the cities. And um, and so that's the second thing. And and then when you start to basically provide other mobility, I think what has been very amazing how the public space has changed. And I think that was very important because people have seen that with this type of mobility transformation, they can create a much more you know livable cities. It bringing back. Uh, uh, the space not only for cars but for 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 the people. So, for example, San Francisco has uh, has used the parking space a lot to de to de or Oslo to deploy some bike lane. Paris has transformed fifty percent of the parking slot to green space and terrace for the cafe. So, so they're basically Barcelona is one of the most famous example of course playground in the middle of of a former street, that's that's amazing. So this is something we see in Bogota, in Latin America, a lot of tactical urbanism. So they start by experimenting and they see how the mobility change around this experimentation with painting and very uh, low cost solution. And as soon as they have shown that this is something that people like and want, they basically uh, transform it in a more permanent uh, solution and public space transformation. And that has been very, uh, very positive. And of course, when you have done this transformation, provide the infrastructure, then you also have some time to go to more co coercive measure. So, and because sometimes you need to push also people to say, you, you have other possibility. We can't continue this air pollution, these things. So we have seen cities like uh, London uh, to uh, to do like ULES low emission zone and car restrictions. That's, that was also an important solution in the 
in the many policies uh, that uh, that are, that cities are taken to accelerate uh, sustainable mobility. Yeah, I think you, like many of um, my guests, we we obviously, since we're talking about cities, we're talking about transportation. And time and time again, I think, and it's worth reiterating that the solution to um, congestion in our cities is not to build larger roads. It never has and it never will be. And there are still, you know... Um, politicians out there, um, since we've been speaking of politicians who advocate for this type of solution. But in fact, what you're pointing to, which is what many, you know, experts in their field point to, is that we just need more uh, options, you know, um, because with more options, you have more choices and, and obviously less um, propensity for congestion. Um, but I think it just makes for a better democratic system. If you can walk, you walk. If you can bike, you bike. If you take a scooter, you can take a scooter and you can take your car every now and then. There's no reason to demonize the car. But when the only option is the car, it becomes um, really uh, limiting and problematic. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but maybe as a way of just rounding out that question, you know, we have that last in the trilogy, <laughs> which is waste, um, which I'm always reminded by whenever I get a package at my door these days. But in any case, um, waste uh, is something that all dense urban areas have had to contend with. And it's not only a contemporary problem. I mean, this has been the case probably since antiquity with the rise of dense cities. Um, so how does C40 propose to address the question of waste? in contemporary cities? So it's, uh, I think it's a very important topic, not only because it's a big contributor of emission, less than building and, and transport, it's around 5 to 10% of the of the city's emission. That being said, it's not just a matter of uh, GAG emission. There is also a lot of um, problem for, you know, <laughs> biodiversities. We have some cities now where uh, the north, the global north uh, countries have exports there, their their um their waste and that are now facing a lot of disease and problematic so it's also a matter of equity <laughs> and uh, and respect to nature so that's that's a very important uh, topic and so we know that the, the waste so produce five percent mostly from the methane that is uh, released uh, from the organic waste in the in the landfill so, so, so the methane gases right it's what you're methane, referring exactly. yeah so that's not the carbon, that's another um, GAG uh, uh, emission uh, gas. Uh, so, but this one is is actually the we produce much less methane than than carbon, but it, it's much more impactful on the climate. And so that's why it's a very important uh, topic to to tackle to reduce this uh, methane uh, emission. And, and there is three categories of waste that are critical in cities. The first is the waste from food and organic waste. And this one, the good news is that we know how to, to deal. And there is a lot of examples in, in, of cities, especially in the North America, who have really worked around these. The second uh, category is the waste from the construction and demolition. So again, from the built environment sectors. And the, the third category, which is very tricky, complicated for city to tackle is uh, the, 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 fossil, the fossil fuel based plastic, and which are very complicated to recycle then and to, to transform so, so that. And, and many cities have set very ambitious uh, target to achieve uh, zero waste or nearly zero waste. And, and I was mentioning, especially in the United States, you have cities like Minneapolis, 
who have already achieved a reduction of uh, a, a diversion of 50% of their waste in the past decade. Santiago achieved 75% and is now reaching, um, uh, is now aiming to reach uh, 90% by uh, uh, 35, by 2035. And probably the city who has been the pioneer in this type of action are San Francisco, is San Francisco. Um, and they have developed, uh, again, it's a little bit like transport. There is no one solution. It's a set of uh, of policies and actions. So, for example, uh, San Francisco has banned uh, single-use uh, foodware plastic, has equipped every household with a composter for uh, composting system for organic waste and many other. They have also developed some policies to tackle uh, a demolition from the built environment sector. So it's a set of policies, but we are also seeing a, a lot of progress on this field. And I was discussing with a representative of the city of San Francisco on this topic, who was telling me actually the, the most complicated one to, to tackle is the plastic. <laughs> so that's, that's really where, for example, San Francisco has really almost tackled all of the emissions that come from the organic waste, the food waste, uh, but they are still struggling with uh, some of the plastic who, uh, who are not, uh, who are, there is so many different plastics that, of course, maybe each of them could be recycled, but it, you need a different process. You need to separate them and everything. So that's, that's make uh, uh, the city a, a nightmare. So we definitely need not only to recycle, but really to reuse or even ban at the max maximum some of these plastics that are so complicated to, to use. And, and yeah, city like San Francisco or San Diego are really pioneer and working on that. And many cities are, working with them to learn from them, especially the European cities where I sit I have a lot to learn from the from the from these uh, North American cities. Yeah, or maybe even, you know, when you're speaking, I think about my experiences in Japan, for instance, you know, I remember going to a um, soccer game with my husband and my son. And we were um, when when the when the game ended, I remember everyone stayed for about 20 minutes and collected their waste and um, left the stands in perfect order and um and as ex at it, as we exited we th I thought well you know it it probably begins with uh, our education you know uh, from a very young age we become aware that you know regardless what your political affiliations are and whether you want to discuss the levels you know scientifically of emissions let's just talk about picking up after ourselves essentially and you know think about uh, very very basic things so that we can you know uh live more responsibly and respectfully so um i learned a great deal from from the Japanese that day in that soccer game. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, but when we return, I'm going to continue my conversation with Ellen Chartier. And we're going to continue speaking about uh, the question of sustainable and resilient planning for the future of our cities. So do not miss the second half of the conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod 
examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Ellen Chardier, um, and we are going to sort of delve or continue to discuss the question of sustainable and resilient planning for the future of our cities. And I think before the break, we were talking about the elements that contribute to global gas emissions. And we spoke about buildings, we spoke about transportation networks and waste. And perhaps now we can um, speak more holistically on the question of planning. Um, And according to C40, um, you have four principles that you believe are fundamental in thinking about sustainable and resilient planning for our cities. Can you describe these to us? Oh, I think you're muted. I think we may have lost you. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's before going to the four principles, I think it's a very important element because sometimes we, we, we have this approach, which is very sectoral, but actually the way you put together, the way you urbanize, it's actually very important to reduce emission. The, the IPCC report mentioned that a good urban planning model could reduce emission by approximately 25% by 2050. And actually, of course, the way you plan the city will influence the way the building emissions, the transport emissions especially. So that's a very transversal and, and, and crucial topic for, for, for cities. Yeah, it and- makes me think, not to interrupt you, but it's not just how we build, but where we build. So, you know, maybe if we built a LEED certified building out in the middle of nowhere, which required tons of transportation and tons of energy, it would be less successful than if we just built a, you know, non-LEED certified building, but in the middle of the city. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, so let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's get into it. No, that's exactly that, and 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 we were mentioning that in the in the beginning of our conversation. So the way we have planned the cities 
after World War II have totally changed. <laughs> and it actually changed because of the introduction of car in cities. So the cars has done two, has created two main problems. <laughs> the first, we have transformed the design of public space. We mentioned that, of course, we needed more space for the car. So it has basically rolled over all of the other functions of the public space like a social function, a working function. It was the main objective of a design. And the second part that has, that we have transformed after the introduction of, of cars, it's the way we plan because it totally changed our relationship to distance and proximity. Of course, uh, you, you people did not need any more access to amenities, services, job opportunities close to where they live because they, they were able to jump on their car and to cross all of the city to go uh, in the other part of the city. And because of that, we have basically extend our city, so create much less compact, but much more, uh, you know, um, urban sprawl-based cities. And we have also um, specialized our neighborhood. So there were neighborhood for living, like with residential areas, only residence area, exactly where I grew up. I was mentioning that before. And there were business districts and there were commercial area where you make fun. And all of them were connected by transport systems that were in the best case scenario, public transport, in the worst case scenario, in the many scenario, like car-oriented, highway, and, and other. And so basically, by planning the cities like that, we have increased the need to travel. So we have like tremendously increased the need to travel across the cities. And, uh, and it has created many of the problems cities are facing today, like long commute, uh, air pollution, uh, but also some neighborhood where it was not like, you know, lack of amenities, not very uh, vibrant. So there is now a, a momentum uh, at, uh, finally to say, you know, actually, maybe it is a, this is the time to change. Actually, 100 years is not so far. It's even less than 100 years, 70 years. And it, we have totally transformed the way we are planning the cities. We need a new act for urbanism. And it's now being really discussed across uh, across the world. And we need to go back to this model that you were mentioning of polycentric city. So moving from a monocentric city where in the middle of the city, you have all of the opportunities everywhere. And around the cities, you have this over-specialization of neighborhood, low-density. So instead of that, we need these polycentric cities made of multiple complete neighborhood where in every neighborhood you have these different mixed use uh, amenities services uh, that uh, that uh, make a city life agreeable first but that also uh, um, reduce the need of travel <laughs> and that's that's the, the main objective and also this type of environment make much more um, you know you don't need so much cars and you can also create more livable uh, public space sometimes i like someone we're saying a public space in a neighborhood should be like the living room <laughs> it should be the place where people meet socialize picnic whatever you want it should not be just a place for mobility and that's really this type of model of so that's a big, uh, a very important principle, uh, uh, creating polycentric cities made of complete neighborhood. The second uh, principle that I think is, is very important, we are mentioning, is this design, the design of the public space, you know, reinvesting on the public space. It is the good, the common good for everywhere. Of course, in a city, you have a smaller a flat, but you can have things. You can have amenities, uh, but you can also have a public space that could also play a role of uh, 
of a, you know garden or something and that's very uh, very important the third element is uh, the one around nature and i think covid has proved that that nature is a is a very important uh, part uh, of uh, of uh, of the livability of the cities in the past we were doing zoning where of course there was a specialization but also there was a natural area that we needed to protect and the rest we didn't want nature and now we know that for the mental health <laughs> for the well-being of the city of the urban citizen we need the need access to 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 green space within the city and actually it's very positive because there is now a lot of studies that show that nature is not only about well-being it's also a very uh, important solution to capture air pollution and it's also a very important solution for example to decrease the temperature during urban heat so we have um, for example we, we we there is some uh, studies that have shown that if you reintroduce nature in city during a major urban heat wave you can reduce the temperature by, by approximately five degrees which is a lot so there is a lot of cities like Tel Aviv, for example, who are investing a lot in uh, in shading strategy, bringing back trees in the city for shade, for for the freshness that the trees and the plant will will bring. So actually, it's like a, the, the tree is like a magic tool that really can bring mental health, well-being, uh, capture air pollution, you know, fresh, uh, uh, you know, bring some fresh in freshness, fresh air in the city when there is heat wave. So that's really, and we are cities across the world uh, are investing massively to plant tree and renature the cities. The first one, one of the pioneers has been Medellin, actually Medellin in uh, in in Colombia was developed uh, already 10 years ago these uh, 13 uh, green corridors across of the city, like corrid ecological corridors that was crossing the cities, 30 of them planting massively trees. And it's actually through, thanks to Medellin policies that the scientist has made all of this calculation about the benefits uh, in terms of uh, of uh, capturing the temperature, can to be heat. It was made uh, in in these cities, and it's really something that all of the cities now are trying to to do. So that's really a, a very important also a principle for the city. So urban planning, the way we plan the city, make sure that uh, that we create. Um, these uh, these model of cities where we don't increase the need of travel, where we bring opportunities to everyone and not only the wealthy or central neighborhood, and we create a livable urban environment for all. That's really very uh, important. And actually, it's interesting because this is not a crazy solution. This is not technology. This is something that you know a lot of cities are doing. A city like uh, like Vancouver, for example, in Canada, is just create his new master plan say, based on this model of complete neighborhood, saying we don't want anymore, you know, the, the neighborhood next to the public station who are super dense and the, and the low density neighborhood. We don't want to create anymore bubble, uh, low density neighborhood. We want to make sure that there is a medium density that will create the opportunity for amenities, services, public transport, because you don't have these services if you don't have enough people. It's not financially viable. doesn't mean it has to become very intensive everywhere. doesn't mean it has to become New York in every neighborhood. But at least you need, you need a minimum of density and mixed use to create this complete neighborhood. And I think that's really a, a model that cities are, are trying to push now. 
And maybe it goes back to the first half of the conversation where we were talking about one of the solutions to think about the built environment is the reuse of existing building, but also the retrofitting. And I can imagine, again, sitting in a place like Miami, right, which has a, a fairly dense uh, urban center, but it also has sprawled enormously. And there's many opportunities um, on the edges of the city to actually retrofit those neighborhoods. There are expansive parking lots. There are very low density strip malls, you know? And so this question of retrofitting can happen at the urban scale, because I think you're absolutely right to say that the polycentric city is not linked to density, right? Because it really is linked to the mix of uses. So you could even think about a historic town before World War II. Maybe the density was very, very low, but it had all of the um, elements that you need to lead your life. So this idea of polycentricity shouldn't be something um, to fear, in fact, because it can occur at a multiplicity of densities. Um, but I think is a is really a, a a formidable solution for thinking about the future of our cities. And, and if I can just build on that, there is a, a recent um, um, there is a recent study from Berkeley in uh, in, in California was uh, was um, tried to study what are the most impactful uh, climate policies that cities can take, and they have taken seven hundred uh, uh, cities or local. Uh, governments uh, across California and they showed for most of them it showed that the first <laughs> the first climate policy should be urban planning and infill policy so basically taking working on the low density residential monofunctional neighborhood and try to you know identify the the the, the parcel that could be densified doesn't mean to be high rise it could be like uh, two or three floors, but it's also bringing different type of household. It's also bringing, you know, commerce and services. And that by doing that, you can transform the city. So Portland has done fantastic work, Pioneer, to transform totally their land use policy and to try to develop, even across the more uh, low density residential, at least a main street. <laughs> so there is one street where you have a little bit more density and a little bit more commerce and services. So at least you create these Polycentric, uh, polycentric approach across the city of uh, of Portland, and that's that's very very important. Yeah, and again, it goes back to the what we were talking about at the beginning, right? With the fifteen minute city, and in a city where you are right now, you're in Paris, right? The arrondissement is in fact the uh, example par excellence of the idea of the polycentric city. So, in a way. Um, you know, in forging forward, uh, we would be well served to study the past and the best examples um, that 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 offers us. So um, I think, you know, we're coming towards the end of the conversation, but maybe um, there was one more example that I um, thought we could spend maybe a minute or two on because I heard you lecture on the super block model in Barcelona. And I was struck by this because the superblock typically has had very negative connotations, even the word superblock, right? Because it's often a very large uh, urban block that is difficult to traverse and it's usually a single use. But um, Barcelona is developing a superblock model um, that is actually um, very different to the negative connotations that I just mentioned. So can you just briefly share with us what that is? Yeah, so that's that's a very interesting example. Actually, they call it super block because of the way Barcelona has been planned. So Cerda, the, the great urbanism of Barcelona, has built the cities in a way that is in a way very similar to New York, like very uh, 
vertical yeah. grids and, and everything. But basically, the problem of Barcelona, so the, the urban fabric of Barcelona is quite working. The big problem of Barcelona is that they have no uh, park. They have no like public space where people can can you know can breathe and, and everything. So they were asking you know until you know the, when the urban fabric is developed, it's very complicated to transform. So basically, they were saying actually our main uh, opportunity is the street, are the streets, and we should. So they basically identify a model where every uh, four uh, four. Um, Every four uh, streets, there is uh, they basically transform, and in the middle of the super block, they remove the car or they reduce the use of car to create some playground, to create some greenery, to create terrace. So it's basically within each of these super blocks, they create a form of living space for the people, and it has created a fantastic model. And it's very interesting because first, it has not created so many congestion problems, but also it has really created a lot of new um, opportunity for the business that were more vibrant, people were in the street, were buying in their bakeries and everything. So that was very uh, positive for the people. And now they are deploying that across the cities. And many cities are trying to to develop something similar. Los Angeles have recently mentioned they want to take inspiration from Barcelona. So I'm going to have to look more into that, but I want to give you at least 30 seconds to answer the last question I ask all my guests, which is, Hélène, what is your favorite city and why? Hmm. So uh, there is a famous uh, song in France called The Happy Fool Who Was Born Somewhere. And I love this song. Of, uh, and it's basically a song where they explain uh, uh, why everyone prefers the place where that you know where you grew up. <laughs> so, of course, the, the city I prefer, it's Paris, because I know Paris. It doesn't mean Paris is better than the other. It's because Paris is the place I know and I own. And, you know, I think it's so that would be my response. That's People a beautiful where we come from. <laughs> and that, that's a beautiful um, response. And in fact, you're right. Many of my guests have actually uh, mentioned the cities that they come from because it is the ones that they know and built the memories. So thank you, Ellen. Thank you for your work in uh, building uh, more sustainable and resilient cities and the clear passion and dedication that you do it with. Um, uh, so thanks again for taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to join me today. And next week, I will be speaking with Mohsen Mostafavi, architect and former dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Design. He has a great deal to say about what the future of our cities should look like. So do not miss this conversation. Uh, look up our previous episodes on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to connecting again next week. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 